When we're young, we spend a lot of time searching for places to call ours. So often they end up being outdoors, away from the eyes of parents, teachers, and really anyone else who might cramp our style. Our hometowns ripen with potential. Any tree might provide a cover for a first sip of beer, any street corner a canvas for adventure. These moments embed themselves in the dirt and the concrete and live there forever. And so, thinking about the idea that our bodies pass through the space of other people's stories all the time, we asked 10 writers to think of a place within the city of Berkeley where something meaningful or memorable happened to them, and then to write a story inspired by that place. Some are fact, some are fiction, and some live somewhere in between. I'm Madeline Oldham, dramaturg and co-sound designer. This week on Berkeley Rep's Place Settings, we bring you a story both formative and transformative, unfolding at the unassuming intersection of Oxford and Center. The Fundamental Kiss with Overtones by Issa Davis, read by the author. Even if I weren't alone in my Brooklyn apartment during quarantine, this would be the memory that calls to me. It always does, over and over. I grew up in Berkeley in the 70s and 80s and have now lived in New York longer than I've lived anywhere. So everything about my hometown has a mythic quality. Berkeley is evocative for me, like a lost land in a fairy tale. It's a place no one rules, but must be entered by portals of Nobelum cheese rolls and cinnamon twists, China rain scent from body time. I never could fully get behind the sale of the name. It's the only body shop to me. RIP to both of them. Or the portal of a Ghirardelli chocolate and vanilla classic swirl mini from Yogurt Park. The corner of Oxford and Center is another portal. On trips home, I walk there, after a vegetarian quesadilla at Cancun, to enter the wooded pathway into campus up to Sather Gate. But that feels backwards. I know this path best by walking it downhill toward Oxford and Center in the summertime, heading home from the Young Musicians Program at UC Berkeley. I was admitted to the free summer intensive at age 10 as a pianist and studied there for eight years with other kids from low-income families who were serious about music. It was bliss. And fear. I loved the day-long single-pointed attention to music, but I also developed the performance anxiety so many classical players do. We couldn't make mistakes. Sitting at the piano on stage, I worried more about hitting the right notes than I actually played in the beauty of the music itself. After our Friday concerts in Hertz Hall, elated by the sounds we'd made and freed from the confines of stage etiquette, we'd eat a pink box lunch from the cafeteria and walk up to the pool in Strawberry Canyon. We climbed the stairs behind the football stadium, screaming jokes and teases up the dusty railroad ties slippery with dead leaves sometimes quietly commending each other on unexpectedly gorgeous performances. We had to break into small groups of two or three at the most to make our way up the narrow stairs 
and a tenderness always grew from the intimacy. Who would you walk with? Who would you get to talk to? I wanted to walk with Marco. He was an oboe player who had just graduated from King Junior High. We were the same year. I had just graduated from Willard, the rival school. I'm not quite sure what made me fall for him. He was cute, of course, but we were all cute in Berkeley. This sounds like an exaggeration, but it's an incontrovertible fact. Every teen, without exception, glowed with the sun, manifestations of our parents' purest dreams. So it could have been his sensitive playing that set him apart, or his appealing way of being on the outskirts of the social center, his faintly punk defiance. He seemed to be having a good time even when he was moody. Some force I could not explain decided that I should write I love you to him in my diary every night. Although a couple other boys liked me, I decided I liked him. I was focused. I was steady. After I'd met him the summer before, I had called him throughout the school year, aided by my note cards with funny observations scribbled on them that I hoped would kick up a laugh. And this summer at music school, he had talked to me here and there if he deigned to socialize. It helped if another girl was around. I was washing and blow-drying my hair after frolicking in the pool with everyone else. I was usually the last to leave the locker room, and through the ventilation slats above the sink mirror, I heard Marco outside talking with some other kids who were on their way to catch the bus. He told them to go on, saying, I'm going to wait for Isa. Had he just claimed me? I didn't rush to get outside to him but I slicked on my silver eyeshadow pencil, which brought out the toasty brown of my summer skin. And we walked past the pool, across the road to the fencing around the football stadium, down the stairs laughing. Then once we'd reached the buildings with classrooms and could walk side by side, something happened. Our hands hung near each other, close and he gently clapped the flat of my hand with his. It was like he was playfully testing whether to hold it. And then after several more touches, he did. We were holding hands. Did it matter what we were saying? I don't remember any of it. We walked while the sun picked up the dust with its rays. We passed through a heat that joined ground with sky down past Hertz Hall, the oak trees, Sather Gate, along the creek. We passed Winnell Hall, where I had been in my first play, past the football statue, and walked over the little creek bridges. And then we were out of the charmed wood of campus and water and music, standing on the corner of Oxford and Center, with cars thunking by, at the point where he would go north and I would go south. And he kissed me there, kissed me to say goodbye, then walked away sweetly, and my life had changed. It wasn't because of how wonderful the kiss felt, the warmth spreading through our bodies as we tasted the ripe fruit of each other's lips. 
And it wasn't because I had wished and willed him to do this for over a year or because so many other girls liked him and he had picked me. It was because I had now stepped out of my imagination and into the real world. I was on the court, not the bench. I was in the river, not on the bank. The longing for love I had felt throughout my childhood disintegrated. I was now part of something, not left out. He had taken away my yearning. But not my expectation of pain. That stayed. After a few precious days of holding hands, of playing video games and sitting together in the cafeteria, of making out feverishly by the lockers in front of other students, he didn't care if they saw, or maybe he did too much. I snapped. What do you think I am? A kissing machine? I blurted one day as we left the arcade. And he visibly recoiled. He stayed close to me a day or so more, and then it was all over. I want to be clear. The kissing was great, and I don't think I was bad at it. At least I didn't feel like I was. Even though he'd probably kissed many girls before me, and this was my first time besides a six-year-old slobber session with a neighbor, it felt natural to kiss him. I wasn't worried about that. It was that I felt he was kissing me. That this melting of boundaries was his decision. And even though I wanted him to kiss me, I didn't know what it meant. Because more than any kiss, I needed to hear that he liked me. Only if he said it would it be true. Kissing somebody wasn't a risk for him, the boy, but it was for me, the girl. I felt I had less power and I wanted as much power as I had given him. I didn't trust that kisses meant care. I needed more proof. What if his kiss meant the opposite, that he was only using me? Was he shaming me in the eyes of others? Was I easy? Fast? Was being kissed worse than not being kissed? And if I had tried to kiss him that first time in the late afternoon on Oxford and Center, if I had risked his rejection, oh, the potential embarrassment was too much to even think of. I didn't want to make mistakes on stage playing piano, and I definitely didn't want to make the mistake of not being wanted since I already felt that way. I was following the gender roles and behavior I'd been assigned I wanted to be good at things, wanted to be good at being a girl so that I would receive the emotional food I was so hungry for. But I sabotaged my dream, being loved by the one I loved, because I was afraid I might be hurt by my own desire, that I might be controlled, that it all might be out of my control. How many times do we foil our best moments, second guess the kindest of smiles, lash out because we think we can't trust someone when we can't trust ourselves? Why do we throw away what we love?
shame, I guess. I felt ashamed at home for not performing blackness properly. And I felt ashamed at school for not performing coolness properly. I had black hair that I could not organize to look like the black or the white girls. I had none of the trappings of my moneyed friends, namely a house I felt I could invite them to. I needed note cards or preparation to make sure I was funny with no conversational lulls. What I did do well was stay away from danger. I had been trained with the phrase, books before boys, and that suited my fears. Anything sexual was to be avoided. I sent Marco packing because of my shame. Let it become more powerful than my desire. I didn't think I was worth kissing, but I wanted him to tell me I was. With the profound wisdom of a 13-year-old, I didn't consider that he might also want to hear how I felt about him. I expected him to intuit my feelings, but did not return the favor. Wanted him to take the risk of saying all those mushy things out loud. Not me. Did I say, I really like you. No one holds a candle to you. I write, I love you in every diary entry. I wash my feet for you at night so they're clean in case you show up in my dream? Of course not. No. We were both shy, implicit. He was only doing what I seemed to want, kissing me. And then when I snapped, he did what I seemed to want again and stopped kissing me. The only feelings that made it out of my mouth were my insecurity, my anger. And when I did speak, I made him feel how I felt. Uncertain. I infected him with how I didn't want to feel. I was an A student, but there was no course offered in communication, so I had no idea how to do it. And I didn't know how crucial an ingredient it was for love. What I needed, I could not provide. Right before we started Berkeley High together, he told a mutual friend that he really liked me and that he didn't know what had happened between us that summer. Though he hadn't shared this with me, that was all I needed to hear. I like him too, I told her. Now I was on a mission. We just needed to tell each other our feelings and get our stars uncrossed. Bam, solved. I found him after school one of the first days of the semester and walked him uptown, as we all called it then, to the bus stop at Kittredge and Shattuck. Spoke freely, apologized, said I liked him too. But that only ripped off his scab. His hurt emerged as anger, still separating. Well, I don't like you anymore, he said without looking at me and got on the 43 bus. And thus commenced a torturous year and a half where I lay myself at his feet in constant supplication and devotion, while he only humiliated or just humored me in return. After unmistakably proving my loyalty, joining marching band and bike club for the sole purpose of being near him, dropping gifts off on his doorstep, sitting next to him in the audience while he made out with another girl during the fall production of Three Penny Opera, and consoling him when another girl broke up with him, I finally developed a crush on an older boy that shocked Marco into returning my affections. 
But by then, it was too late. Once I extracted my feelings, I couldn't pump them back in. Senior year, we went to the prom together as friends. I left him unrequited, even into our adult years. Just as my initial attraction arrived shrouded in mystery, I have no idea why it faded, nor do I know why his attraction to me lingered until he met his wife. Why do we care about anyone else's first kisses or relationships, about love songs or stories, or decide we don't care? Because it helps us see or avoid ourselves, what we've done, what we wish we could do. I look back at this moment and see how I had all but the most crucial things, the ability to acknowledge my uncertainty, to ask for what I needed, to learn something new, like how to talk about my uncertainty and needs, all while being stared at. By now, it's clear that whether I've got note cards or not, making mistakes in relationships is the only course in communication I'm going to get. We know how to talk better now, Marco and I. We formed each other over many years, like Glacier and Bedrock, and that closeness abides even though we live on opposite sides of a continent. I adore him, his wife, his kids, his sister, and tell him so. I call him every year on his birthday. He never remembers mine, and it's fine. He loves me and doesn't need to prove it. I'm not married or partnered or a mother as much as I want and have wanted to be. What I do have right now is an unlabeled connection with someone who excites a deep passion in me. Perhaps a mature version of how I felt about Marco. Like the teenager Marco was, this guy doesn't say how he feels, which sends me flying into hurt and anger and shame, my past repeating. But the difference now is I know to say how I feel, how much I love him, that I want to hear his feelings too. And right now, I really wouldn't mind being a kissing machine. This story was written and read by Isa Davis, an Obie Award-winning, Pulitzer Prize-nominated performer, composer, and writer working on stage and screen. She grew up in and around Berkeley and lives in Brooklyn. Berkeley Rep thanks our Rep On Air sponsor, the Bernard Osher Foundation, and our place-setting sponsor, Berkeleyside. And we are so grateful to our Berkeley Rep season sponsors, Bruce Golden and Michelle Mercer, Jack and Betty Schaefer, the Strauch-Kulhangian family, Francis Hellman and Warren Breslau, Bart, and Pete's Coffee for their generous support. Produced by Berkeley Repertory Theater, Sound design by Lane Elms and Madeline Oldham, with additional music by Jerome Ellis, who, like Issa, is a human of many talents. He writes, composes, performs, and he can also tune your piano. You can find his work on Bandcamp. Our theme music is by Buen Aurelio Malazar. You can also find him on Bandcamp. 
Join us next week for a story by Adam Mansbach.